I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Melissa Mark Viverito, congressional candidate for New York's 15th congressional district. We discuss the impact of the coronavirus on vulnerable and marginalized communities, including the population at Rikers Island. Before her congressional candidacy and during her tenure as Speaker of the New York City Council, Melissa was at the forefront of the fight to close Rikers Island. And of course, due to the pandemic, Melissa has been outspoken about the inhumane conditions incarcerated people have to endure. We also discuss ways in which the pandemic has disproportionately affected other marginalized communities and the programs they rely on. So here is my conversation with Melissa Mark Viverito. Melissa Mark Viverito, thank you for joining me again, actually. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, you know, the last time we spoke, it feels like the world was completely different. Right. Yeah. And so now that we're all in a pandemic, we're quarantined, it feels like things are falling apart. But, you know, one of the things that we're only beginning to talk about in relation to the pandemic and COVID-19 is what's happening to the prison population. Right. And this is the population that people think about last. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Without a doubt, this concept of who's expendable, who isn't right, is, is really something that's coming into focus. I think. Obviously, the the pandemic and coronavirus has really put into glaring focus uh, the inequality that exists in our society. And who does that inequality obviously impact? It's communities of color, right? It's an inequality that basically fuels uh, poverty. It fuels overcrowding, unjust housing. It fuels um, uh, health disparities because you have a lack of access to health care. Uh, quality healthcare, you, you know, it talks, it's all about these issues that communities of color, African American, Latinos predominantly, are facing in the city. And so within that context, you have the prison population as well, right? A community that has been over criminalized historically in our society are black and brown folks. And we have an over criminalization of a certain population that is housed now at Rikers Island. And so this pandemic is. Uh, impacting not only in New York City, obviously we're having this conversation across the country. Uh, We woke up this morning to Washington, in the state of Washington, prisoners rioting because of the lack of conditions and and the care and concern for their health and safety and the safety of the workers too, we have to think about. So I think that all of that is is a lot to to think of, but those of us that have been fighting inequality and injustice and figuring out ways that we can create a more just and equitable society by changing our policies, and looking at where we put our priorities, um, the issue of our prisoners and about how they're being treated and about how their health and concern is not seen as the overall health and concern of the greater society is really problematic and it's troubling. And so that's why I think that this issue is so important and I appreciate that you're putting some attention to it. Yeah. You know, what's really concerning and troubling and just kind of insane about the Washington state situation is that Washington state was the original epicenter of the outbreak. But everybody Mm -hmm. was looking to Washington state because we have an amazing governor, Governor, you know, Jay Inslee, and we're a progressive, progressive state, at least, you know, Seattle and pockets of it aren't necessarily progressive, but generally we're thought of as a progressive state. And if this could happen in Washington state, right? right? Well, I mean, look, and, and, you know, kudos to Governor Inslee, uh, kudos to Governor Newsom in California, who have really took this on early in terms of tampering down the containment uh, of social isolation, et cetera. And you are reaping the rewards of that. Unfortunately, we have a situation that is still out of control in the state of New York. And uh, within the prison population at Rikers Island, right, when we look at the latest numbers, we're 287 inmates. Uh, and 441 employees are basically testing positive. That is becoming a situation that's out of control. 
And what are the implications of that? There's been a lot of pressure from advocates, from medical personnel on Rikers Island that treat the inmates, that they have to be released, right? That there has to be this release when we think about the overall health of our city and of containing this. That's an issue that needs to be prioritized. And unfortunately, it's moving extremely slowly. And and so then we're going to keep seeing uh, these statistics rise. and, And that's problem. So it's not being given the urgency that it merits. Obviously, the Independent Commission, which I had convened originally when I was speaker, to look at the issue of closing down Rikers Island, also put out a statement supported by legal aid providers and others saying that we had to move more quickly on this. And a lot of the consensus is coming around to that. And and we're hoping that we'll see some movement. But everything has been slow. We understand that with with a crisis like this, it's like you're almost think you're plugging your fingers into the dike and every day it's a new hole pops up, right? And the water keeps flowing. But, you know, we all know poverty exists. We all know that low-income communities um, uh, are suffer disproportionately the impact of any health crisis. We all know that systemic racism exists. We all know that that's a reality. So understanding that we have to make sure that the responses to any crisis is centered first and foremost in that reality because that then should be able to shape how you respond. Where is it that you're going to put the attention, the focus, the resources? So for instance, the Bronx, right, which is um, the poorest borough out of the five boroughs in the city of New York has become the new epicenter of this epidemic. We have seen an incredible number of deaths. The greatest number of deaths of any borough in the city of New York is in the Bronx. And yet uh, we have not seen an expansion of, of ICU bed capacity. We are not really understanding how the deployment of resources is taking place. Uh, the nurses are rallying and protesting because they're not getting the proper support. Uh, so in that poorest borough where the disparities are so large, large African-American Latino population predominantly, um, you're seeing the lack of attention even to this day where now we're seeing those numbers continue to rise. And so that Again, it's, it's troubling. We know this reality exists, and yet we cannot seem to rally our responses um, and organize our responses and center our responses on that reality and how we address it. So um, I think that the Riker situation is a manifestation of all of that. Right. I mean, what we're seeing now is that vulnerable populations generally, right, not just in Rikers Island, not just in the prison population, but just like you said, in the Bronx and black and brown communities, the disparities that were already there, you know, they were already kind of vulnerable to something like this Mm -hmm. happening. It was just going to highlight, just amplify the vulnerabilities that were already there. So exactly. Um, But I do want to talk about Rikers Island, because that's something that you have been focused on long before the pandemic, right? Because you spearheaded a study, look at possibilities or options to closing down Rikers Island. So what did that conclude? What did the study conclude? Advocates, right, for many years have been talking about the closing of Rikers Island, right? Rikers Island is a facility that has existed since the 1930s, uh, incredibly obsolete, inhumane. Uh, And so the idea that advocates have been talking for years about closing down Rikers, and there hadn't really been an ability to get leadership in the city to really embrace that idea. So I, as speaker, in I think my second year, called to convene an independent commission with the understanding that we wanted to study the idea of closing Rikers Island. And so it was a commission that brought together um, respected leaders. It was people in the private sector, obviously former, formerly incarcerated people, people that are providers of services uh, to formerly incarcerated people. We had the former 
chief judge of the state of New York, a highly respected individual and chief uh, judge Jonathan Lippman to convene the commission. And it was a process that was about a year and a half where that commission convened, did community conversations, studied the data and came up with the understanding that yes, it is way overdue that we close Rikers Island. And even with that convening of that commission, the respected people on the panels, the, the, the level of thought that went into it, it still was not an easy sell after that, right? But in having my support, having the advocates obviously continue to push, uh, we were able to really get the mayor, who was not very favorable to the outcome, uh, you know, to come around and agree that it was high time that we... Uh, we close Rikers. Now, the idea also is, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, that we know historically the overcriminalization of black and brown folks. So the idea also that while we're trying to talk about the closure of Rikers Island and downsizing, we wanted to really downsize the jail population at Rikers Island, right? Where we had a historic high at Rikers, and it was about 18 to 20,000 people in severely overcrowded conditions. To the point now at Rikers, and by the time that the commission came up with its recommendations, the population was at about six or 7,000, right? So the idea was to continue to implement policies in the city of New York that were going to continue to downsize the jail population at Rikers, and at the same time, then talk and, and focus on creating these community facilities to basically get to the end point where people at Rikers who are from all over the city, all five boroughs, would be able to be more locally based in their neighborhoods, closer to their family networks and closer to their neighborhood networks as a way of, of providing a more holistic approach and so that they could more seamlessly, right, if fully integrate back into society and, and try to lessen the stigma uh, and give them skill sets and really provide wraparound services uh, to, to those who are in the, in the jail system. So that was where we ended up. And so that's the recommendation that was made. And last year, late last year, uh, the city council finally did vote on making that a reality. And so it's, a, it's an important milestone. And I, and I think that it took a lot of work, obviously. And I'm very proud of that work. And, and engaging in a conversation that now is taking hold across the country as well. Wow, that's amazing. That's actually a really big deal. That's a big deal. It, I mean, it, it's, it's again, I, I give a lot of credit to the activists who never gave up that fight because it was a conversation that had been happening for a lot of years. And I think what ultimately really, I think, materialized this or, or made it a visual, right, about what is so wrong with Rikers the Inhumanity of Rikers was the story of Khalif Browder, which basically the story of a young man, 16 years of age, who was arrested and, and accused, not convicted, accused of having stolen a book bag. Something very, you know, nonviolent, something that happened at 16 years of age. Because his family could not pay bail, that young man stayed at Rikers for three years. Three years for being accused of stealing a backpack, put in solitary confinement, an experience which basically broke him. And when he was able to come out of Rikers after three years of those horrific inhumane conditions, um, he eventually killed himself. And yeah. the experience had just uh, created that situation. And so that story, I think, really put into perspective what is so wrong with this and that we were able to really uh, you know, talk to his mother um, when I did announce the creation of the Independent Commission, I reached out to his mother, you know, and I indicated that I was wanted to convene this commission, that it was 
basically coming out of that horrific experience that Khalif and she and his family had lived and that I would want her to be there present at the announcement. And she joined us. She has since then, unfortunately, passed away. But, you know, she understood and she was, you know, an activist in her own right to talk about the experience and that the bail system also, right, it brought this into conversation. You have a two-tiered system where people that have the ability to make bail can get out of jail. But people who are similarly accused of similar crimes and who are poor cannot get out of jail and have to wait for their court date in jail. And that's what happened with Khalif and his family. And so this is, you know, really galvanizing moment, um, unfortunately, out of a tragedy. But it really was able to crystallize for people why there was a need to really look at this more seriously and to implement changes and to lead to the closure of Rikers Island. So uh, now we're in a situation with the pandemic, obviously, that it has brought this conversation into a different light. And it is now crystallizing, once again, the inhumanity of our jail system and our prison system. Uh, and that that it's just unsustainable. Yeah, the Khalif Browder story, I mean, it just haunts me. And if you weren't aware of what we do to young people and about the situation at Rikers Island before, you know, the Khalif Browder um, story and that tragedy, should, should it should haunt everyone now. It really doesn't. And that we have those stories, unfortunately, repeating themselves. There's a whole conversation happening at the state level about bail reform, right? And unfortunately, there was a lot of progress that was made last year and a lot of that progress was now recently rolled back um, based on reactionary opposition, right, to the bail changes and the changes to the bail system. People don't understand, you know, bail is not meant to be punitive. Bail is supposed no. to be as a way of just ensuring that you're going to arrive at your court date. And this day and age, we still have uh, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, the other issue that people don't realize about Rikers Island is that the vast majority of people at Rikers Island are people that are just awaiting their court dates. A lot of people don't have the ability to post bail, right? Uh, or don't have the ability financially to post bail. And about maybe 15%, 10 to 15%, maybe 20% of those on Rikers Island are fulfilling terms of one year or less. But the vast, vast, vast majority of those at Rikers are awaiting court dates and are awaiting their court hearings. So that's where we keep you know, pushing, pushing to make these changes, systemic changes, so that we have less and less and less people on Rikers Island and, and, and eventually get to the point where we do have these community facilities that allow people to be closer to their family networks. All right. Well, you have a situation like Khalif Browder. Like you said, it's still happening. People think that when you're in jail, you're guilty, right? But that's not true. These these are people often who have been just accused of something. They aren't necessarily, it hasn't been proven exactly. that they're guilty and they just don't have the money to get out. And and I just want to reiterate that he was 16 years old, right? Yes, you yes. know. And now when you have a pandemic and you have the situation that's happening in prisons, if you are accused of whether you're guilty or not of stealing a backpack and you go to, to a place like Rikers Island with the pandemic, that could be a death sentence. Of course. And then also that there's like some, you know, technicalities and, and uh, parole violations for people that you know, our nonviolent offenses. It's just, you know, it's it's just the craziness. I think the craziness of the system is is exposed here. And I think that those who want to continue to hold on, that, that this is the way to do it, I think that we have to challenge that notion consistently, right? This, again, as I mentioned, the overcriminalization of our communities. And usually when it is people of color, it's viewed very differently, right? There at least seems to be less tolerance, quote unquote, for those of us, right, that are Latinos, African-Americans, that are immigrants, and that we have to push on that because a lot of that stems from prejudice and from racism. People don't want to admit that, right? People get really upset. 
if you, you know, if you make those statements because they personalize it, right? And, and, but it's true, right? We have the educational system. We have our, our justice system. Everything has been based within these frameworks that a lot of times are racist and uh, overtly or covertly, right? And it may not be so um, obvious to some, but they're there. And we have to continue to peel away at it and continue to challenge it. And I think that Obviously, this progressive wave, the movement that Bernie Sanders has inspired, the young people that are part of that movement, some of the elected officials that are coming out of that movement, you know, are really embracing this and challenging this. And I think that with that growing, we can get to a point where we can get more radical change in place, which is important at this point. And I would say, I mean, I don't want to say radical because I think it's logical, right, to many of us that believe in equality and injustice. This is where we should be. Um, we have to keep aspiring to that. And that's why with uh, with Biker's conversation, it was an important conversation to have. And this is something that we started at this point five years ago, where we're in a totally different place in time as to where we are now, where a lot of those conversations have been advanced. And so, you know, I'm proud that we were kind of able to be ahead of that wave and really challenge the system and really be thoughtful about it and cutting edge to a certain way and now hoping that we can continue that conversation moving forward and enact more changes. Yeah, just something that you said earlier, I think that people do shut down because they do feel like it's a personal indictment, you know, when they benefit themselves from the privilege and they're aware of the disparities. And, you know, no one really wants to hear that, right? So, um, yep. Do you know what the conditions are right now at Rikers? I mean, because I would imagine that it's impossible to practice social distancing, you know, as, you know, advised by the CDC. Do they have hand sanitizers? What are the conditions right now? This morning I was doing an interview on a local channel and prior to my coming on, they had the president of the Correction Officers Union speaking. And obviously, you know, he's there to defend his members, as we all should be concerned about our our workforce and making sure everybody's healthy and everybody's safety is, is important. But yes, yeah, really he's really denouncing the, the lack of seriousness that the city is giving this. Um, when I read the numbers and before, I mean, we're talking about 441 employees inside the Department of Corrections system. That's an alarming number. And then the 287 inmates. So within a confined space like that, how do you not only deal with social distancing, how do you deal with, with, with um, disinfecting? Right? How do you deal with making sure that you're sanitizing on a consistent basis? It's not easy. And I just don't imagine that it's being done as effectively as it should. And so that's the, the concern. We're not getting clarity as to what other steps that are being taken. And after the interview this morning, the reporter read a statement that was put out by the Department of Corrections, and it was completely nonsensical to me. Oh, we're creating resting spaces for the workers. We're taking care of this. We're handling it. Not not very concrete words, you know, very th- uh, words and statements that were left to a lot of interpretation and not a lot of facts or understanding of what it is, in fact, that they are doing. So it's not clear, to be honest. I'm sure the conditions, as we're seeing by the numbers, and these numbers will change probably day to day, that's the indication of whether or not the Department of Corrections and the city of New York has a handle on it. And it's not just the city. I, I want to make sure that we're you know, also making sure that the state has a role to play in this too. So it's both the governor and the mayor that are fully responsible for this and and have to take it more seriously and have to be able to lay out something much more concretely 
as to what is happening. What, what What's a resting space? That's what I want to know. But that's literally what was in the statement. Like, well, we're, probably, we're probably, you know, areas of rest for the workers. And I'm like, well, what, what good does that do them? Were you, you're not talking about sanitizing, right? You're not talking about those people that are, that have COVID. What are you, what's happening with them? What's happening with those workers who are positive? Are they still being asked to come to work? You know, are they off? What, you know, there's that lack of, of, of clarity, I think is what causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. In situations like this, where there's a lot of uncertainty and chaos, people need to feel and information is a way of, of really kind of trying to assuage people's fears. And, and we're not getting that in certain circumstances, right? Even to this day, um, when I hear the governor's briefings and even the mayor's, you know, they've been pushed and pushed. We're still not getting the racial breakdown of the data. Right. We're starting to just get it. And it's still not very clear. Now we are starting to say, okay, now we know the Bronx has the greatest number of deaths. But how do you break that down further? Where within the Bronx is that happening? Right. And what are you doing to address that? We have nurses out of Jacoby Hospital, out of Lincoln Hospital, out of Bronx, Lebanon that are protesting because the governor and the mayor are telling us, yes, equipment is here. We're getting the equipment out there. But the frontline workers are telling us they're not getting it. So there is a lot of that, um, you know, conflicting information. And it just, you know, fuels that anxiety even further that already is here because, you know, the numbers are staggering and it's, it's alarming. We had 800 deaths today. It's the highest number yet um, between yesterday and today, 800 deaths. And it's, you know, the last three days we've seen an increase and it was 732 days ago was 770 yesterday. It's about 800 today. Um, It's, you know, it's, that leads to a lot of, I mean, myself, personal, I'm not immune to it. You know, when I started to see those numbers, it got me really down. Uh, yeah. You know, sense of, you have a sense of, of um, paralysis almost that you yeah. feel, you know, useless. And what can you do? How can you solve it? Those of us that are problem solvers that want, you know, to, to help. So, you know, we need more from our, our leaders at this time, I think. I think a lot of us can can um, connect with the idea of feeling kind of helpless, you know. But, you know, I was reading an interview, and I don't know what state this was in. Maybe it was at Rikers Island, but I'm thinking it's a different state. But that people in the prison population are afraid if they are symptomatic because... They're using a solitary confinement to isolate prisoners who are symptomatic. And so mm. if someone is symptomatic, they don't want to tell anyone. And so they don't get help because they'll end up in, in, you know, isolation. Right. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of that. Right. Now, that's that's very particular to the prison population. But then when you talk about right, there was some reporting happening today about the increase in hate crimes towards the Orthodox right community, Jewish community. And, and also obviously the Asian community, people that are accusing them, right, of being the reasons why uh, we have this pandemic or that why it's getting, it's, it's exacerbating. And so there's, there is a, a lot of concern. That's why leadership is important because you have to send a tone and a message from the top. And when you have a president that continues to fuel this hatred and racism and stigmatization, um, then he's fueling it and he's not doing anything to get, to try to bring the country together and to have us all go through this together um, and to let us know that we're all in this together. So, and continuing to reinforce the positive messages. The fact that we, to this day, do not have a national policy across all states and territories um, about how we should be handling this and, and creating a uniform way and approach from everybody it's like it's like with the balloon, right? The balloon that when you squeeze it, right now 
you know, Washington and California may have it under control. But if you have those Republican governors that are continuing to allow people to go to their church service and allow people to go to, to the beaches and allowing people to do social gatherings, that's not helping, right? Because then we have these, you know, people can go across state lines and then you can create a second wave of this. So we don't, we cannot, I'm still waiting for that. And I've been saying that for weeks now, there's been no national policy in place. And that is, again, the lack of leadership uh, that I believe at times is intentional coming from this administration. Uh, and so it's, it's really of concern because we're not going to get a handle on this anytime soon if that's not addressed. There has to be a national, more uniform policy across all areas. Yeah, and there, there, there really is no rational explanation as to why there hasn't been a national response. And you know, people say it's just incompetence, but you know, personally, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily buy that as a full excuse. But I mean, we could go on and on about you know the possibilities as to why there isn't a national response. But right. Yeah, and I honestly don't think that we're going to get a national response until Republicans are are out of power. That's just my my take, my hot take. Yeah, or or you start seeing uh, devastating results in these, which you're starting to see, right, in these Republican states. But then also you see the politicization of the way that the resources are being allocated. You know, we are the epicenter of this pandemic, and we have been from the beginning. And yet, if we've received 20 to 25 percent of what we've been asking for, it would be a lot. You know, meanwhile, you have a Republican governor who completely defied you know, any of the social distancing or any of the other recommendations. And he's getting over 200% of what he wants. He's getting more than what he actually requested. So, you know, you, when you politicize the pandemic, you know, you're going to have this inequality that is as exacerbated as well. It's a basically an affront to our democracy too, because we're also seeing how this pandemic is being used as a way to also further voter suppression. When we see, you know, the disaster that the Republicans enacted in Wisconsin, uh, that's horrific. Right. Um, or when we're having a conversation about we need to think about a national mail by, you know, vote by mail program uh, leading into this. And there's no interest. Right. There's probably going to be no interest from the Senate to, to engage in that and obviously from the president. And so this is really problematic. And and so these are conversations that we still have not engaged in, but are important. Our presidential primary here in the state of New York was supposed to be at the end of April. It now has been moved to June, June 23rd, where now it will be a primary. But who knows where we'll be in June? We may still be impacted. We may still not be able to do poll sites. The governor just yesterday said that basically he will make and he will drop any of the obstacles to absentee ballots so people can vote by mail and people can vote at home. So at least that measure is being taken into account. But there's lack of consistency of how that's going to be addressed. Uh, the national general election is going to be critical. And I'm sure the wheels are already turning in those Republicans' minds about how they're going to try to minimize the ability for Democrats to come out in numbers and make it yeah. harder. And that's happening. Yeah. yeah. If you read Carol Anderson's book, One Person, No Vote, which is crucial, I think, for everybody to read now, you know, she goes historically through all of the different ways that voter suppression has worked throughout history. And the thing that we've discovered is that, you know, voter suppression generally, even when it's applied really broadly... It doesn't benefit progressive policies or liberals or Democrats. It benefits Republicans. So they don't have to be very precise necessarily in the way that they apply it. But voter suppression generally benefits them. So when he comes out and says, you know, like, oh, vote by mail, which is a very Democratic way to vote. We don't want that. 
And, you know, he comes out and says, because, you know, bad things happen for Republicans when people can vote, you know, by mail. Exactly. You know, they understand that, too. They understand it. Exactly. And then the reporting today that came out talking about how now also the ceremonies that immigrants who have gone through the citizenship process now to become U.S. citizens, they have to go through that ceremony. And then after those ceremonies, usually people are automatically enrolled to vote. Well, that's all on hold right now. Those ceremonies aren't happening. We're on average 60 to 65,000 people right? Um, we're, we're becoming U.S. citizens a month. Now that's completely on pause, right? So there, there's an aspect there of, of those who were expecting to be part of this democratic process, who were looking forward to it, who feel that's their civic duty. And now all those dreams are deferred, right? So that obviously is something that is um, beneficial to the Republicans, clearly, because we know uh, immigrant communities would, in record numbers, probably vote uh, against this, uh, this, the occupant of the White House. But there's a lot of different measures that are happening. So, th- so I think that the conversation, I, I'm starting to hear a little bit about it. I know Elizabeth Warren came out with uh, a plan, as she does with, with everything. She sees, she looks ahead. But the <laughs> issue of talking about what are we going to do right now? What's the conversation we need to be having in Congress right now to facilitate voting? in this time of a pandemic. And so that's, we need to be aggressive about that. We need to be very aggressive about that. And, and I'm hoping that that's going to start happening. You know, the other thing also considering the the district the in the Bronx, I am running as a candidate for Congress, but uh, the 15th congressional district, unfortunately, is considered one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. Um, so that's why, you know, the issue of inequality and how this pandemic is impacting the Bronx in particular is, is an important conversation. But um, as a way of trying to really, you know, activate the community and try to get people more engaged, we're, we're starting to do a series of chats, uh, you know, like Zoom chats or Google chats, uh, yeah. opening it up to the community around issues of concern. So today we're doing the first one around um, food insecurity and how to, can people access whatever benefits, right? We've had several packages passed at the congressional level. Uh, what are the benefits that are coming down the line that people can have access to? Uh, and then talking about the resources locally, what food pantries are still available, open, uh, what are the anti-poverty, anti-hunger measures that are happening locally that people should be aware of and that you can you know, sign up for or be a part of. So we're trying to be proactive and really have an ability to engage people and, and in this time where people, a lot of us feel so overwhelmed and trying to figure out a way that we can turn that around and, and get people to make phone calls to their neighbors, check in on their neighbors, which is another aspect of the work that we're doing, feeling that want to make connections with people and calling them. So I've been having incredible conversations uh, with, with members of the community to either link them up to services, a lot of seniors that need access to food, knowing that there's food available, that food can be delivered to your home, that we could sign them up for that. People that want to know about unemployment insurance now that they're unemployed and we're seeing the problems that people are having, accessing the portals right at the state level to sign up for unemployment insurance. I had a great conversation yesterday uh, with a woman who's a nurse and her daughter just recently graduated from nursing school, who's just been thrown into the front lines of all of this and that she's scared, you know, as anybody would be. But fascinating conversations with people uh, and hearing directly about how this is um, this pandemic is impacting them. Uh, And so and then trying to engage them, right, trying to get them to help us make calls to other neighbors and figure out how we can be of help. So it's been been a challenging time, but trying to figure out the silver lining to it, too. So I know that one of the the things that's been impacted by this and something that you are advocating for or against rather is the summer youth employment program. Have they cut it or they're thinking about cutting it due to the the pandemic? No, the mayor already put out letters to providers saying that as a result of the pandemic, that 
basically all operations on the program are to cease and that it was not going to move forward, which um, it's just doesn't make sense to me, right? The summer youth employment program, we, when I was on the council, we fought and pushed to have the historic record about 70,000 young people in the city of New York, um, still severely underrepresented because the need is much greater in terms of the demand. But 70,000 young people that participate in this program and that does multiple things, right? We're talking about predominantly working class, low-income communities that uh, that are benefiting from this, young people that are benefiting from this. Uh, it gives them, basically they're doing something in the summer. So it's about discipline, about skills development, and about doing something proactive and productive uh, during the summer summer and skills that they can carry over. And so it's, it's you know, the, the, the jobs and the work that they do is varied. It could be at a nonprofit organization, it could be in the private sector. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great program to keep young people positively engaged. Um, and it can be seen in some ways as an anti-poverty program. I don't like that term, but in terms of addressing some of the economic challenges that, that we have in particular communities. So in light of what we're living right now, and this is the, the argument that I've been making, one is obviously just the solid importance of the program. But we have a federal package um, that was passed that leaves many, many behind. Um, we have a package that gives a laughable amount in the $1,200 to individuals, a one-time payment. Um, and supposedly you get $500 on top of that for every child, but only up to the age of 16. So you have families who have children that are 17, 18, 19 years of age that are not getting the additional amount um, to help cover costs for their families. The SYP program can help be kind of like a stopgap, right, for those families, um, many of whom, right, these young people would be part of families that are going to be missing out on that benefit. And then you also have the issue of the ITIN, right? People, are immigrants are filing taxes with ITIN numbers, paying taxes, and are not part of this economic package. Uh, again, many of our young people uh, may be born here in the U.S. or participating in the SYP program whose parents are not going to have access to those economic resources. So, okay, fine. So a young person may not be able to physically go do an internship, but we shouldn't just limit the program to that. We should be thinking outside the box in this time of need, in this time of crisis, and thinking about what are the needs that our families have and how can we use this as a program to help, right, in the areas where the federal government did not come through and, and, and uh, left too many behind. So I think that the thought of it is, is very limited in scope. Uh, not looking at the greater challenges and needs that we have right now. And the last thing is that the administration did not even bother to engage with the providers to maybe talk about a brainstorming session about, okay, so we can't do this program typically the way we've run it. How do we structure it in a way that it can still be of service and of help to families, maybe and of service and help to the city? Maybe these young people have a skill set. Maybe there's ways they can contribute. Right. And ask to be step up to the plate and help the city in this time of need, help their family members or help their neighbors. Maybe they can make phone calls. Maybe there's other ways that we can put their energy and harness their energy um, and ask them to to engage civically at this time of need. So there's a lot there, but I, I really don't think that it was well thought out. I think it's short sighted. And I really would hope that um, it's reconsidered for the next 
fiscal year. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, is that there are, I mean, at least, you know, talk about it and discuss it and look for alternatives because there are hundreds of thousands of people across the country, you know, probably millions who are working in industries where, you know, they are working from home and they can work remotely. And, you know, I'm sure that there are some solutions to help these young people just not lose their summer income and their summer jobs. But, you know, you no. have to actually go through it and discuss it. Yep. But the, you know, the, the other thing, the reality, though, is that this sheltering from home, you know, it really is a privilege, right? It really you have to think it about is. it. If we, if we want certain industries to continue to operate, we have our delivery workers, right? We have our postal service workers. There's certain things that have to continue. Obviously, you have our home care workers um, that are, you know, a, another part of this, this infrastructure that is incredibly vital and important. And we're not taking their health care needs into account. There are many, many people that do not have the luxury to be sitting at home and to work from home and that are forced or need to be on the front lines and need to be working. So one, their safety has to be critically important, but they also have to be a priority for any sort of package that is being discussed at the federal level. Those workers cannot be left in behind, and that includes our undocumented workers too. And so that to me is, is definitely a big problem with what has happened at the federal level. There is talk now about potentially a fourth package uh, and that has to be something that we, we force the conversation and that has to be um, taking into consideration. It has to be part of the package. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, um, Melissa Mark Favorito, thank you so much for joining me today. And I love talking to you. Thank you for your advocacy and your activism because you, you always see these kind of pockets or corners of inequality that are often missed. And so just thank you for, for doing that work. And thank you for covering this issue. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.